please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 6, where the same text is printed on the next page of your bulletin for you. actually going to start by reading verse uh, 42 of chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, then you can follow along there, but um, let's pray, and then we'll read the, the text. Father, we need your help as we open your word. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, give us understanding, illuminate our minds as we come to your word, and change us by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 5.42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So this passage has a lot of good things to say to us as a church plant, actually. Uh, Just to let you know where Ascension is in the life of a church, um, Ascension is a mission work, not a full-fledged church. It's a a mission work of Evergreen Presbyterian Church in Beaverton. Um, Evergreen is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. That's the denomination. Uh, But Ascension has to take a few more steps before we're a bona fide uh, particular church, right, um, in our denomination. And particularization or organization, fancy words, um, they come when we have our own officers. Um, We recognize in our denomination and with our um, theological standards, we recognize in the Bible two offices, right? One is elders and uh, the other is the office of deacon. And just to make things a little bit confusing, (laughs) uh, we talked about this a little bit yesterday in the leadership forum. Uh, So there's more to say about this, but there's some nuanced views uh, with regard to uh, the way we we look at offices. There's the elders and the deacons, but the elders, there's two orders or two classes of of that office. And there's a teaching elder, which is a pastor, right? I'm a teaching elder. And there's a ruling elder, which is a a lay elder. And so, in order to become a particular church, we'll need at least a plurality of elders. So it would be me and uh, probably two 
two plus, I think that's the minimum, <laughs> uh, ruling elders, <laughs> right? So <clears throat> uh, we're going to formally begin officer training on January 7th, which is a Saturday, and we're going to meet on Saturday mornings, probably at like 7 a.m., uh, like every week for several months, maybe eight months. Um, maybe we won't meet every week the whole time, but up front for several months we're going to meet uh, weekly because we've got a lot of materials to cover. We're going to um, go over a lot of books together, and the training is going to be open to anybody who's interested, really, um, whether or not you think uh, you're, you're going to be eventually an elder or a deacon, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, this training will be opened uh, to you. So anybody can come to the training, uh, but it will be required for anyone who wants to be an elder or a deacon, anybody who wants to be an officer in the church. Um, <clears throat> and then later in the year, so this will start in January, later in the year, probably in the fall sometime, uh, men who want to stand for office will be examined, right? And, and a list of those who are examined and approved uh, will be given to the congregation, and then you, you nominate uh, people to office from that, and then you elect those, um, those folks who uh, have been nominated. And so <clears throat> if this process produces at least two ruling elders, then... Um, then we will schedule a, a service of particularization, a service of organization. Uh, probably, uh, well, I'm kind of hoping it'll be early 2013, but during the service, we'll ordain and install those officers, and then um, Ascension will become a particular church, an organized church. And some other things also have to happen between now and then, but that'll be what keeps me busy for the next year or so. Um, <clears throat> so, why bring all this up? Uh, in our passage we see the beginning of the organization of the church. Um, before this, there isn't too much uh, structure, right? There isn't too much order. Uh, it's just a lot of people who are excited about the gospel and everybody's giving and everybody's loving one another. Um, but not much structure, not much organization. But we see from the epistles that the church, as the body of Christ, is to display the many glories of Jesus, who is the head of the body head of the church. Uh, and this happens as the members of the church grow to maturity together in the exercise of their various gifts in their various roles in the church. And there are some things that all Christians are supposed to do, like loving one another and uh, serving the poor and doing evangelism, right? Uh, and then each Christian has a specific calling to exercise specific gifts. So some are specially gifted and called to do evangelism and to do teaching, and some are specially gifted and called to spend more time um, serving the poor, etc. Right? And, um, some are gifted and called to lead the church in these things in order to help the whole church, the whole body, to do the work of the ministry. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. I'll read a couple of verses from there. Um, Ephesians 4 verse 7 Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Down in verse 11 now. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a long sentence, Um, but basically it means this. Jesus is the perfect man, right? He's the perfect elder. He's the perfect deacon. He's the perfect evangelist. He can perfectly meet every need. He can perfectly minister to any type of person. Um, Jesus is the perfect man, and he is our head, and we are in him. We are his body, and we are meant to work together to, um, to attain to the measure of his stature, right? He can do it all. We can only do bits of it. But when you put those bits together, we more accurately reflect the one who can do it all, right? And he says in, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So Christians in the church are each, in this analogy, which you see throughout the New Testament, this this, uh, concept that we're the body of Christ. We're the earthly representation of him. We work together as one um, Christians in the church are different parts of that body, right? And I believe that organization uh, of the church, organization, the word comes from the same root as organism, right? It's a life form that works well and orderly and properly. Um, <clears throat> so I believe that organization of the church is reflective of the properly orderly division of ministry, division of labor in ministry, right? Um, in the organism, in the body. It's not body-like to have everybody basically doing the same thing, right? Um, There's no generic body part. Just think of the human body. There's no generic limb. There's no generic appendage meant to accomplish everything perfectly. Um, And it's not body-like if one limb does all the work and the rest of the limbs are just kind of dead weight polio-stricken, paralyzed, dragging along, (laughs) right? Uh, That's not a healthy organism. It's not a healthy body. That's not how Christ's body is intended to function. Each member has a special part to play, and we each need uh, to exercise our own gifts, and we each need each other's gifts, right? The hand is not made for running on, and the eye isn't made for pounding nails, (laughs) And the, uh, the foot, um, well, you can't see with your foot, right? So uh, if the body parts aren't doing what they're made to do, then the body's not organized. It's ineffective. But if we've divided up the labors of ministry appropriately, each one according to gifts and callings, the church will be healthy and the church will grow and we will better reflect the multifaceted glories of our King and Savior. You see... Jesus is the only one who does all things perfectly. And we can really only imitate him together as we pool our uh, spiritual resources, right? And that, I think, is what's happening in our text this morning. So let's uh, look at it a little more closely. Again, backing up to uh, chapter 5, verse 42. Every day in the temple and from house to house, the apostles did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So in chapter 4, we saw that the church, as it grew, was very generous. No one had any need because everyone was taking care of each other, right? Uh, and the way that they did this was by selling their possessions. If they had more than they needed, they would sell it and they would take the proceeds and they would bring the proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet. They would bring the proceeds to the apostles for distribution. The 12 apostles had all the responsibilities for leadership and teaching and care at this early stage in the church. <clears throat> now, you might imagine this became difficult as the church grew to around 10,000 people, right? 12 guys uh, taking care of all of that. And here we have in our text some folks just finally slipping through the cracks, unfortunately. Um, but it was inevitable, right? Unfortunately, it had the potential to reflect badly on the apostles and even really on the whole church because of who these folks were that were slipping through the cracks. The Hellenists were Jews from the dispersion. Um, that is, they're Jews who were descended from the Jews who had previously been driven out of Palestine through various invasions like the Assyrian invasion or the Babylonian uh, invasion several hundred years before, right? And so these Jews, um, these Hellenists, might have moved back to the Jerusalem metro area, but uh, they didn't speak a Semitic language like Hebrew or probably Aramaic was the more common language of the time uh, in Palestine. But they spoke only Greek. That's why they're called Hellenists. Um, that's Hellenist and Greek is the same thing. They spoke only Greek, and they even had Greek-speaking synagogues, right? So here's good Jews. They don't go to the Hebrew-speaking synagogues. They have their own Greek-speaking synagogues. And rather than fully reintegrate into the Hebrew way of life, they had maintained their own communities because of the various cultural and especially linguistic barriers that were uh, too difficult for, their, for them to overcome. That's easy to understand, right? Because there's, there's uh, similar pockets of uh, communities in every major metropolitan area in the world, uh, even in Hillsborough, right? Major Hillsborough metro area uh, that we have here. Caucasians and Asians and Hispanics living very close to each other but rarely overlapping in community due to language barriers, uh, cultural barriers, other customs that have traditionally separated us. Um, the church, however, is supposed to be a community where those barriers are overcome because Jesus bought with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he's putting together a body that reflects his glory because of the diversity of the people <laughs> that exist in this body. But it's pretty challenging work, right? It's really hard to integrate people from such different backgrounds into one church. Um, and this aspect of the gospel in the church was only just beginning to come on the radar for the apostles, really. And to make matters worse, the Hellenists weren't just complaining that they didn't feel welcome for linguistic purposes or whatever. They were upset that their widows were being neglected. I don't think the text gives us reason to fault the apostles 
for this oversight. Uh, I think really they just couldn't possibly handle it all. Um, 12 apostles for a church of 10,000 members, but man, you cannot neglect those widows, right? James, the apostle James later writes in his letter that uh, pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress, in their affliction, right? You cannot neglect the widows. They were some of the most vulnerable members of society, emotionally and socially and economically, right? And Jesus said that caring for people like that was a top priority. Um, it says this in the Old Testament law. Read uh, Deuteronomy. I'll read some from chapter 24 of that book. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So the, the exodus out of Egypt, when God delivered his people from oppression and slavery there, is the great picture in the Old Testament of the salvation of Jesus Christ that he brings in the New Testament, right? Uh, God says, you were the slave, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Right? You know what it feels like to be spiritually vulnerable. You know what it feels like to be spiritually alone. You have to remember that, he says. Remember that and remember how God redeemed you and then extend that same kindness to others in need. Right? If you really appreciate the free love, the free grace of Jesus that's given to you when you had no other hope for acceptance or even survival, right? then you will sympathize with the widows and you will take care of them. And Psalm 46, uh, uh, 146, which we read earlier, says that the Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. And if we're going to reflect the glories of our Savior, then we, um, as his body, as his church, are going to uphold those who have no other support in this world. And that doesn't happen, that can't happen, when just a few people in the church are doing all the work. When the whole workload of the labors of ministry rest on just a few, then either they do a bunch of things really poorly or they do a few things well to the neglect of others. And that was what was starting to happen in the early church, and that's really still a common thing to happen in a lot of churches. Uh, it's especially common to run into problems like this as the church grows. Right? Um, everyone expects... Ministries to expand, to accommodate the growth. There's more people here, we've got to minister to more people here, right? 
But can the existing leaders really handle it all? Should they handle it all? Um, Is that how best to reflect the various glories of Christ in the church? It says in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the apostles call a congregational meeting. And they say, sorry, we can't do it all. Um, They aren't expressing frustration or defensiveness at being criticized. right? Remember the Hellenists brought a complaint against the Hebrews. They're not expressing frustration or defensiveness. They're not expressing disdain at the the menial task as if it were beneath them right, to serve people like that. They're probably really bummed out that the widows were neglected. Um, They just know that they've been specifically called and gifted to bear witness to the resurrection, to preach the gospel, to do evangelism, to do counseling and training and whatever other forms of word ministry that there are. They know that they are a part of Christ's body. Let's say they're the mouth, right? And they can't do the work of the hand. Can't do the work of both hands. Um, In fact, they shouldn't do the work of the hands. God intended the ministry to be shared by all in his body. Continuing on, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here, the apostles give instructions to the congregation to nominate and elect officers for the church. That's what these are. Um, Just a little side note here. I don't think that we can be more specific than to say that these seven were officers. uh, Recognized and elected leaders. A lot of people think that they're the first deacons. Um, Really, I think most people probably through history have looked at them and said, oh, those are the first deacons um, because they're tasked with the ministry of mercy to the widows, right? Um, And perhaps because the verb that you see in verse 2 where it says uh, the apostles are saying we're not going to give up the word ministry to serve tables, that word um, is diaconine, to serve, right? But the same root word shows up in verse 4, where the apostles say that they will devote themselves to the ministry, the diaconia, of the word. So um, it also seems a little strange that Stephen and Philip, who are the first two guys listed in this, um, this list of the seven, they go on to preach and do evangelism and baptize people, which are more in line with our understanding of what the Bible says when it talks about the office of elder than uh, the office of deacon. So some people actually think that these seven are ruling elders. Some people think they're pastors. Uh, A lot of people think they're deacons. I personally think that this is just the first general batch of non-apostles that are officers, right? It's a, um, which would probably include both elders and deacons. After this account, we start to see more clearly the division of labor into those specific roles, but this is a transitional time in the history of the church, right? So you've got the apostles, and then you've got these general officers 
And then later you see Paul giving instructions about the distinctions between the elders and the deacons who come from that initial body of officers. But the point of the text, right, whoever these guys are, whatever their specific role is, uh, the point of the text is that in order to truly and more fully represent Jesus in the world through ministry, well, the leadership had to be shared. The ministry leadership had to be shared. So the congregation was to nominate and elect seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom the apostles would appoint to this duty. Right? So what does that mean, seven men of good repute? Being of good repute means that their ministry and their character had already been witnessed by the congregation. People uh, knew that these guys were quality, and they could point to their experience with these guys to say that these are the right men for the job. Uh, John Calvin writes this as kind of a warning. We must use great circumspection that we choose none unto the holy function of the church unless we have some trial of him first. So you can't base your choice of an officer on the potential he has for growth in ministry, for growth in the office. You need to see him acting like an elder or a deacon before nominating him. Uh, His election is really more like the church's recognition that um, God has gifted him and called him uh, to this particular office in his life. You can probably all imagine... Uh, you might even had experience with this, but putting the wrong guy in office because uh, you didn't have some trial of him first, didn't see his ministry up front, can be devastating to a church. Um, so he needs to be of good repute. And that's what that means. And demonstrate up front the ministry that's appropriate to that office. Then he needs to be um, full of the spirit, right? That means that they're living in such a way that you, um, you cannot explain the fruit in their lives in any other way than that they are full of the Spirit. That doesn't just mean that they're virtuous, well-respected citizens. Right? That might be part of it, but you know that people can be good people without being Christians. Right? You know that people can be respected citizens in our community without being part of the church at all. But what are some of the things that only Christians who are full of the Spirit do? Um, Only people full of the Spirit take ownership of their faults, right? And constantly draw attention not to themselves, but to the grace of Jesus that's at work in them. Only people full of the Spirit depend on God for everything and are always in prayer, asking for help or giving thanks to God for his work in their lives. Only people who are full of the Spirit will be truly humble and give God the full credit for the work that's taking place in their ministry. Only people who are full of the Spirit will be willing to give up their rights and, and serve others so that the people around them can see the sacrificial love of Jesus coming through their lives. Right? That's what it means to be full of the Spirit. Um, there's a quote from uh, a sermon that my old uh, mentor Charles Garland gave uh, just a while back. He says, what we usually do in the church, especially in a young church where we don't know each other as well, 
is that we look at people who are gifted, at people who know a lot, at people who have visionary leadership skills, and we say, those are the people that should be leaders. The scripture points us in a different direction and says, no, we look at people who have God's grace at work in their lives deeply, and that's who should lead us, people who are good repenters. Not the people who seem to have everything together, but the people who are continually being challenged and reformed by Jesus' grace in their own lives. That's the kind of character that's most important in Christian leadership. It's more important than visionary ability, skills, and gifts. So these, uh, these guys were supposed to be men of good repute and full of the Spirit, and they needed to be full of wisdom, which is usually something that comes with age and experience. It's not always the case, right? But um, wisdom usually comes with age and experience. And uh, commentator David Peterson writes this, Wisdom may have been especially necessary in dealing with the complexity of relationships hinted at in the passage. So let me just clarify, this is not the kind of wisdom that knows how to play church politics, which unfortunately happens pretty frequently. It's not the kind of wisdom that knows how to manipulate people to get them to volunteer for stuff. It's not the kind of wisdom that knows how to juggle the approval of the Hellenists and the Hebrews in order to keep everyone happy. That's not biblical wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom that sees to the heart of people and sees their needs and discovers how to minister the love of Christ to everyone. In fact, it's the kind of wisdom that seeks to equip the whole church to do that seeks to equip the whole church to actually love other people to do the work of the ministry. It's a relational wisdom. It's a spiritual wisdom that recognizes what God is doing in particular lives and participates in that work and facilitates the participation of other people in that work. That's the wisdom that these are supposed to have. So these seven men elected by the congregation would be of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, and they would be appointed by the apostles to their duty. And that that may mean that um, the apostles somehow examine them for approval, but at least it seems um, to mean that as leaders in Christ's church, the apostles were involved in the process of new leaders being appointed. To some degree, they were involved. Um, When God calls someone to an office... That person has an internal sense of calling, uh, or at least he's better. Uh, And the congregation confirms that with an external call. And the existing leaders of the church are also used by God to appoint or commission or ordain him to join them in the leadership of the church. And so, continuing in verse 5, what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So, this was a remar- remarkably good congregational meeting, considering the size of the congregation. They recognized the wisdom in what the apostles were saying, and so they went about the process of nomination and election. We don't know how long it took probably wasn't the same meeting, I guess. Um, But the great thing about what happens 
is that each of these seven men had Greek names, right? which probably means they were mostly Hellenists themselves. And this is a big step in the right direction for caring for the Greek widows in particular, but also looking to the church's mission to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem, right? beyond Judea to the nations. In this paragraph, Luke sets the stage for the expansion of the church. What are the first two names that are listed? There's Stephen, who in the next chapter becomes the first martyr. And then just like the original dispersion uh, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians driving out the Jews into the nations surrounding them, the church is about to be propelled outward uh, by persecution. Persecution first fell on Stephen, and then the whole church gets pushed out of Jerusalem. Um, the church is about to go, grow rapidly, right, among the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, and that's exactly what Jesus wanted. That is what he commissioned them to do. And then there's Philip, who in Acts chapter 8 preaches and performs miracles in Samaria, right, the neighboring, you know, the people that the Jews hated, the Samaritans, um, and then evangelizes and baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. That's really far away, right? He's out in the desert in the southern part of uh, Judah, runs into uh, an emissary from uh, Ethiopia, evangelizes him and baptizes him before being carried away by the Spirit to other places to do evangelism, right? And Philip is actually the church's first missionary, the first recorded one anyway, He's actually called Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21. And then the last guy on the list, um, you know, we don't hear about anybody else, but uh, this last guy, Nicholas, was a proselyte of Antioch. This guy's straight up a Gentile, right? He was not born a Jew. He converted to Judaism before then converting to Christianity. Right? He's the first non-Jewish-born officer of the church. Antioch, where he's from, was the, the site of the first Gentile church. And it was the sending-off point for Paul in his missionary journeys to uh, the rest of the Mediterranean area. <clears throat> so the church here is on the brink of exploding into the nations. And the leadership is beginning to reflect that diversity. And that diversity is a beautiful thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a diversity not only of ministries and of gifts that we exercise uh, in order to reflect the multiple glories of Jesus Christ himself. It's also a diversity. It's, it's a vast array of types of people that God loves, that God calls into his church, that God um, makes participants with him in his ministry. Right? It's a vast array of types of people. And this is the beginning of it. And um, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly or rapidly. It's already been pretty rapid growth that they've experienced, but the disciples are multiplying in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So when the church got organized, right, started working like an organism, like a body with different members performing different functions and dividing the labors of the ministry. 
when the church got organized and started reflecting more the diversity of Christ's ministries, then the church grew and people were attracted to the body. And Luke says that even a, a great many of the priests started believing, started uh, believing the gospel and, and submitting themselves to God through it. The priests are almost always, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, the priests are almost always uh, portrayed as the enemies of Jesus, the enemies of his kingdom. When the church reflects the beauty and the love and the, the diverse glories of Jesus better, um, then even his enemies are attracted to his grace. And it's not because they're attracted to the church in and of itself, right? As if we're a bunch of good people and they just want to join our club. That's not it. They're attracted to Jesus because it's only his grace that takes diverse people like the Hellenists and the Hebrews and breaks down all the barriers that are between them to unite them in one body and gives them various and multifaceted gifts to reflect his glories and makes them move out toward the unloved with love. It's only the grace of Jesus that does that. And you know, this might be a surprise, the priests themselves were probably feeling unloved. Um, in fact, in some lists of the Old Testament, like we read about the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, um, the Levites are added to that. The priests are added to that as those who should be the recipients of our compassion. Right? Deuteronomy 14 says this, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands do. So when God gave the land originally to the 12 tribes of Israel, he deliberately left one of the tribes without an inheritance. No geographical property, no stake, right? The Levites had no land. They were to serve in the temple as priests. But by Jesus' day, you know, they, they only served for like one month in the temple out of every year. And the other 11 months, they had to work regular jobs. And they didn't have the benefit of family-owned land to rely on for their income. So they were more likely to be poor, right? Sure, the few high priests uh, that are in charge from wealthy, influential families, but the lower ranks of the priesthood were mostly poor, and there were thousands of them. Um, one commentator I read said, like, 18,000 poor priests, poor Levites. And these were probably attracted to Jesus by the charity of the Christians because the church was sharing with the needy constantly, not just every three years when they brought the tithe out and had a big feast. They were constantly taking care of those who were in need so that nobody had need anymore. The church was able to do this because they reflected Jesus' own care for the poor while not neglecting Jesus' own concern for the preaching of the gospel. Right? The church learned to share the ministry of Christ together to the glory of Christ 
and to the growth of his kingdom. So let's pray and ask God to show us how to recognize and use the gifts that he's given to each one of us for the building up of his body uh, to better represent the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ himself. Uh, Let's pray. Father, if there are any of us here who haven't put our faith in Christ, we pray that you would do a work of renewal in that person's heart, that you would draw them into your body, that they would see not just the the hypocrisy that's always present in in a church, uh, the sin, because each of our members is still a sinner, that they would not see those things alone, but that they would see your love uh, demonstrated clearly through your people, love and patience and grace and forgiveness extending to all people uh, through your body. We pray that um, all of our non-Christian friends would come to know you and your grace through uh, the way that we share the work of your ministry inside the church and, um, and outside the church, beyond our walls in this world. We pray that you would be glorified as we reflect uh, your ministry better. And we can only do that as we uh, do that together. So we pray that you would show us, uh, show each one of us, how it is that you've specifically um, gifted and called us to a particular role and service in the church so that uh, working together we might build one another up in love uh, for the sake of your kingdom going forward in this world. We pray this uh, all in your name for your kingdom's sake. Amen.